When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. It's Leonard. Our guest today drops a couple of F-bombs during our conversation that I decided to keep in the episode. So if you have any sensitive ears listening in, you may want to grab your AirPods. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate effectively in difficult situations, both professional and personal. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Some of the earliest research in the field of risk communication took place in medical settings, particularly in conversations between doctors and patients who were just diagnosed with a terminal illness. Communication doesn't get any more complicated or difficult than that. So I'm very pleased to be joined today by Antra Kathleen Boyd, a longtime operating nurse who left the profession to become a patient advocate. The need for surgery routinely ranks among Americans' top fears, and the entire process from diagnosis to recovery can be very intimidating. Effective communication in this kind of a setting is an absolute must, and having someone like Antra on your side can be just invaluable. As you'll hear, she echoes one of the most important overall themes of this podcast, which is the need to eliminate jargon when we communicate in difficult situations. She mentions that only 12% of the U.S. population is considered to be health literate, which means that patients really need someone to help them understand what's happening to them, and that medical providers need to work extra hard to make sure that they're understood. Which is why I'm very excited that on next week's episode, we'll be joined by a practicing physician who's going to talk about the importance of effective communication from his perspective. To learn more about Antra and her practice, please check the show notes for a link to her website. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Antra, thank you for joining us on What to Say When Things Get Tough. Talk a little bit about your experience communicating in difficult situations. My first question for you is, how did you come to be involved in the field of patient advocacy? Well, I um, am a nurse and I spent most of my career as an operating room nurse. So I was working in the silo of care literally I for 10 years I worked in a very small community hospital where there were like only 10 OR suites as compared to a trauma hospital that has like you know 25 OR suites or more and it, it was very frustrating for me to see all of the gaps in our healthcare system just in my own silo of care and so I you know and I tried very hard inside the system to to help change outcome for the better and it felt like I was always spinning my wheels. And so I thought, well, what if I could walk alongside a patient and help them navigate the healthcare system, especially when they're faced with a difficult or challenging diagnosis? And that's how Connected Care Patient Advocates was born. It's funny that this is the you know question that you started off with because really it all came down to communication and teams and, and how we interact on a daily basis to make sure that our patients are safe and that they don't suffer a poor outcome, right? One, one example of that was in an operating room, we do a thing called a timeout, which is where we stop as a team before we start a surgery and we re-identify the patient 
what kind of surgery the patient's having, what side the patient's having the surgery on, if it's a left knee, a right knee, for example, allergies they might have. And, and it's really a chance for the team to sort of communicate any kind of issues that might come up during surgery, concerns that you know somebody might have, and it includes all of us, myself, as the operating room nurse, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and usually there's a, a surgical technician or a, a scrub nurse as well. And I was in a room, we were doing a back surgery and we stopped to do the timeout, which is really simple, right? It's a simple thing to do in an operating room. It doesn't cost money and you would not believe the, the kickback you get from people who, who just don't wanna do it to do the timeout. The surgeon said his piece. The anesthesiologist said his piece and the surgeon walked out of the room. And nor the, the scrub nurse nor myself got to say our piece of the puzzle in the timeout. And so we waited and he walked back into the room and asked why we had not proceeded with draping and getting the patient prepped. And I said, well, because you walked out of the room and we have to do the timeout over again. He looked at me and he said, are you fucking kidding me? And I said, actually, no, I'm not kidding you. At that point, I really literally wanted to crawl inside of a hole and die. And, and that's how you can see where communication breaks down because people don't want to speak up. They're afraid, right? They're afraid they're going to get humiliated. They're afraid that they're going to maybe say the wrong thing. Or So that was my inclination. However, as a nurse, it's, that is my job is to advocate. So I held my ground. And then he looked at me and said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you always drive the speed limit? Do you always follow the rules? We're about to operate on somebody's back. Not, a, not a, an apt comparison that he just made. No. And it was not logical either. And any, they didn't, they, it wasn't logical. Anyhow, so, you know, needless to say, we redid the timeout. The surgery was successful. The patient went on to have a good outcome. But that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. It was like, you know what? I have been a patient champion. We have done, you know, we did all kinds of in-services in the operating room about communication. I think we did crucial conversations. We were always trying to get teams to, to communicate better, to just be better teams all around. And it just, it was always, it just was, it was always frustrating. And what you're describing is communication among the, the medical team that's providing the service to the patient. Of course, in the OR, the patient is anesthetized. They're not a part of that conversation. Right. You're almost bringing the patient into that conversation to a degree so that they have somebody who's there to advocate for them, not just in the OR, but in the hospital setting, which I think is so important because it, it as you pointed out, it, for you, your relationship with the surgeon, it was intimidating for you to speak up. And you can imagine how intimidating it is for a patient to speak up in the face of you know, a number of medical professionals who uh, all are very well educated, highly experienced, speaking in terms that you know they can't understand. So all that by way of getting into what kinds of things do you do to assist a patient? And perhaps you can walk us through from, if it makes sense, from arrival at the hospital to, to discharge. 
Sure. So as a, as a patient advocate, you mentioned it does, it is really hard for people to speak up. The doctor, the, the era of the doctor knows best is still, still not quite gone. It's getting there, but especially with our, our older population, they grew up in that era. And so they really, you know, are very much conditioned to do exactly what the doctor says, no questions asked, which is fair. I, I completely get that's, that's, how they grew up, but there is quite a bit of fear. And, and the other thing is that they don't know what to ask, right? So they don't, and they don't understand the language. I mean, medical, medical ease is, is difficult for even me sometimes to understand. And I'm a nurse and have been in the field for 20 plus years. So how does any normal person really navigate that, especially when they're facing a, a complex diagnosis? So one of the things that I do is really facilitate Okay, so if I'm in an appointment with a doc- with a patient and a doctor, busy taking notes, I've got a lot of you know already prepared questions. But at the end of the day, when we go back to our homes, I will sit down with the patient and really explain. Okay, this is what he meant by chemotherapy. Th- these are the drugs. These are you know, and I'll really simplify it. And it's interesting because you know I always send my clients the notes from the meetings, and I always break it down to make it super easy to understand. And even I think. Think, oh wait, lesion. The word lesion is can be the same word as cancer. But if you're not a medical pro- professional, how would you know that? So then you think, okay, well, they say I have a lesion, but I also have cancer. So it gets very confusing. And even you know, I notice in my own work, even that thing, even that lesion seems to me simple and easy to understand, and yet it's not. And, and if you look at the statistics in, in health literacy in this country, 12% of the population is health literate. That means that they understand how to read a medication label on a bottle of pharmaceuticals, or they can briefly tell you what the liver does, kind of, sort of, right? That's health literacy in this country, 12%. So you can imagine for the rest of us poor schlubs what that might look like, right? One of the skills and techniques that I talk about frequently in terms of communicating effectively in difficult situations is to eliminate wherever possible jargon because it is a true barrier to effective communication. As you pointed out, it's not just a a lack of understanding, but it adds a layer of intimidation. Mm -hmm. And it is very off-putting to someone like a patient who is trying to understand something unbelievably important to them, something that's a matter of their own health and well-being, if they are, a lot of jargon gets thrown at them, they'll stop paying attention. And in many cases, it can make people very angry because they feel as though they're being spoken down to, that the person is being condescending. So yeah, it's, you've identified one of the most important uh, barriers to effective communication in difficult situations, and one that when I work with clients who are, you know, who are essentially, I, I don't work with physicians, but are in their shoes in terms of the technical expert trying to explain something complicated to a non-technical audience, that that's almost rule number one. When they start speaking, as we're practicing things, if, if I hear any kind of jargon, even what might seem like you point out lesion, I have to say, nobody's going to understand what that means. You have to speak in a way that people can understand. What's interesting about it is, well, maybe and frightening at the same time, is that, you know, if you don't understand what's being, what the doctor is telling you or what, what your diet, you know, what, what are the outcomes? You know, death and disability, 
right? We're not talking about misunderstanding something in, in advertising, for example. This is, this is your life on the line. And so it becomes imperative. And preventable death in this country is the third leading cause of death. And that's preventable death in hospitals. So that doesn't account for disability or harm done by medical error. And that doesn't account for the, those, any of those things in clinics or long-term care facilities. Or, so you can imagine, wow, I really should be informed. I really should know what's happening to my body. You would not believe how many patients I would get in the OR right before their surgery. I'd go into the short stay unit where their you know, nurses are getting them ready for their surgery. And we're talking like 10 minutes before their surgery. And one of my jobs is to verify that their consent is correct, that they've consented to the surgery, that they understand what's happening to them, that they understand the risks and the benefits. You wouldn't believe how many times I walk in there to do that and patients have no idea what's happening to them. Five minutes, 10 minutes before they're ready to roll into an operating room. It's astounding to me. Well, one thing I definitely want to spend time talking about is your advice for patients uh, and, and what they should do to educate and prepare themselves. But uh, one thing you said uh, sparked a, another question. As a patient advocate, are you, what is the reaction uh, by doctors and other medical professionals to your presence? Do they generally welcome you as a, an asset or do they tolerate you? Um, it's a, it, it's a, a bit of a mixed bag. You know, working with surgeons my whole life, they tend to be a little bit more prickly than other doctors, but that's not necessarily totally true. I've just had a few who were like, well, you know, what's your purpose here and how are you going to help? And generally though, I have to say they really appreciate it. And it's been ever more clear to me during COVID because I've been doing a lot of telehealth with physicians and patients that, that they get like, oh my gosh, First of all, I only have seven to 15 minutes with each patient, right? Because they're getting paid for, for their visits, how many visits they do and for how many procedures they do, right? And, and so the more patients they see, the you know, more reimbursement they get. So they don't have a lot of time to educate. They don't have a lot of time to break it down. So by and large, they have really appreciated the fact that they know that when they get off the phone or telehealth conference or when we leave the office, that I'm going to sit down with that patient and I am going to go over and break it down so that it's simple to understand. So I have to say they've really, they've really appreciated it. And I think you're going to see this role of a, there's lots of patient advocates out there right now. A lot of them work for hospitals, insurance companies. What makes my job different is I'm independent of those of those um, organizations. I work directly for the clients, so there's no conflict of interest. And I think that we're gonna see it more and more where patients are reaching out to independent patient advocates because they want that one-on-one, no conflict of interest time with, you know, with an advocate who can really break it down for them at the end of the day. People's insurance will cover your services? They don't yet, but I think because it's a relatively new role for nurses, you can say you had a bad outcome in a, in a, in a, in a surgery or whatnot, and you don't want that to ever happen to anyone ever again. 
you can actually go out and become a health advocate, hang a shingle and start a business, which is great because there are some really good advocates out there. But nurses, you know, I mean, obviously I'm biased, uh, but nurses, you know, we know the medical system. We know what to do when there's a problem. We know how to go to up the chain of command. I mean, OR, nurse, OR nurses in particular, but all nurses are very adaptable. They have to, you know, be able to react quickly to change. They have to be able to troubleshoot. So it really, we are suited for the role, but it's relatively new for us to be independent working directly for clients. And I think once the, the ball starts to roll farther and farther downhill, you're going to see insurance pick us up. We're going to, they're going to see better outcomes with their, with their patients. So I think it's only a matter of time. So I, I guess the, first piece of advice you would have for somebody going into a situation you know, facing surgery would be to hire someone like you um, as an advocate. But let's say whether or not they do that, uh, what advice would you have for, say, somebody like me, um, um, I have to have a shoulder surgery, which may actually be the case. As a patient, what should I be thinking about? What should I be doing? How, how should I be communicating effectively with my surgeon and other medical professionals involved in my care? For anybody, whether you're having surgery or you've you know, got a diagnosis of cancer or for anybody who's interfacing with the medical system, you know, when you go, we'll use you as an example for surgery. So when you go to your appointment, your first appointment and your, and your doctor says, you know, you're going to need a shoulder surgery. We looked at your MRI. This is what we found. The first thing to do is really ask questions. Be curious. I always tell my patients, be curious. No question is too dumb. There is, there is no such thing as a dumb question, actually. And I will tell you that healthcare providers and doctors, they like engagement. I mean, the only way we're really going to get to health in this country is if we engage in our own health. And when I mean engage in our own health, I mean we take responsibility because we can't rely on the system, the doctors to do it for us. That's not their role anyways. I mean, if you think about it, doctors are there to guide us, to help us with best decisions, right? Just because a doctor says you should have chemotherapy doesn't mean that's true, but it's his recommendation based on his many years of schooling. So it, it makes sense to take it into serious consideration. So I always tell clients, be curious and be engaged ask questions. Like I said, no question is, there's no dumb question. So that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is to really be informed about what's going to happen in a surgery. Most people are like, oh, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to see that. But YouTube is a great place to find out like, what does a shoulder surgery entail? right? You can go to YouTube and look at it. Yes, you might get a queasy stomach if there's, if you're not, if you don't like the sight of blood, but really there's textbooks, there's, there's all kinds of resources on the internet. Know what's happening to your body. Be informed. When you sign that consent form for a surgery, you understand what the risks are. You understand what the benefits are. You understand that there are alternatives and you understand what the surgery is. And then if we're talking about post-op, Transitions of care are really dicey. So a transition transition of care is moving from one silo of care, like the operating room, to the recovery room, and from the recovery room to the floor where you're going to spend the night or a couple of nights, and then from the floor home. Those are all transitions of care, and those are dicey because that's where communication really breaks down. The doctor gives some orders, something gets missed, you end up back at home, you don't have any pain medication, you know, those kinds of things. 
So really, again, be engaged. Always have somebody with you on a discharge from any hospital, always, because you're probably still loopy on, on medication. To expect you to remember everything that's being told to you in a discharge, impossible. So have somebody with you to take notes. You know, make sure that there's a can call your doctor if there's if you have any concerns. And no concern is too small. I mean, we would probably save the healthcare system millions of dollars of, of millions of dollars by not going to the ER if we just called the doctor, even when we thought, oh, this is this isn't really that important. I, follow your gut, right? Like listen to what your body's telling you. So in that situation, in a surgical situation, that's that's kind of my advice, but really it's across the board. Be engaged and be curious. You mentioned having somebody with you in recovery to help take notes regarding post-op procedures and instructions. And I've, I believe I've read that it's important to have someone with you throughout the entire process if you can. So even when you're going in, as you point out, if I went in and I told, yes, you're going to need shoulder surgery, I should have my girlfriend there because shoulder surgery is relatively benign, but um, other more difficult news, uh, people can drift off you know, if they suddenly are very concerned about their health. And it's important to have somebody who can stay focused on the issue at hand to, as you point out, do all the things you've mentioned, ask questions, take notes, and so forth. You know, there's a, um, a organization called the Joint Commission, and they're the, the regulatory body that goes into hospitals to make sure hospitals are practicing to the standard of care. And they've actually issued a statement that, that says that they don't care who you are, you bring somebody to every appointment with you in this country. So if you're going for a, an annual physical, you bring somebody with you, a friend, a girlfriend, a spouse, whoever, it doesn't matter. You bring somebody with you, which is really telling, right? That's, if, that's, if that's where we are where we are in this country in, in terms of our, our healthcare system, that we need somebody with us, that's, that's the reason is because of all of this preventable medical error. And to your point of when somebody's being is faced with a challenging medical diagnosis. Two years into my practice as a patient advocate, I was diagnosed with the rare cancer and I brought an advocate with me, but I also had my husband with me and he's a very rational linear thinker. And I will tell you from experience that I heard nothing and I was very prepared for my first appointments, but I didn't hear a thing the doctor said. In fact, when we left, I kept asking my advocate like, oh, I forgot that question. She said, no, you, you, we asked that. Oh, well, what about this? Yeah, we asked that too. Like I couldn't remember. And the funny thing is, or not funny, but sad is my husband couldn't either. So it's why having an, an independent advocate is actually helpful, especially in those situations when it's shoulder surgery and it's, you know, definitely a more benign, easier than having your girlfriend or somebody with you is, is probably totally fine. I guess it. Uh two heads are better than one and sometimes three heads. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me turn that question around then. Um, based on your experience working with and communicating with surgeons and other medical professionals, what advice would you have for, for them uh, in terms of being better communicators with their patients? That's a very good question. I think bedside manner really matters, right? At the end of the day, and we'll use surgery again, just because it's my wheelhouse, but at the end of the day, 
a surgeon, you know, he, he spends or she spends years and years in school, right? What they were trained to do was do surgery. And so, you know, they can be at the top of their game. And at the end of the day, you really want somebody who's at the top of their game. So if their bedside manner isn't that great, as long as they're an expert in their field and you're having a major surgery, you probably don't care that much. But I will tell you that bedside manner and coming from a place of really wanting to be of service is so helpful to patients. The difference between a doctor who gets on, like I was just on a telehealth conference with a client of mine and a kidney specialist. And we were, it was a three-way phone call. So we weren't talking face to face and she was so good. She had the empathy. She had the compassion. It was a really challenging, difficult diagnosis, but she was also very good at breaking it down, of answering our questions really to the best of her ability. I was so impressed. And, and you leave those kinds of conversations feeling, feeling like that doctor's got my back. That doctor's going to take care of me, right? Versus the one that's really short is not, there's, there's really not a lot of compassion because it's a busy world and it's, it's high stress. And you, you can see why, why they might come to the table like that at times. But you leave those situations where I don't know if that can be my doctor. That was a little rough. So I, I think the empathy, the compassion, the sort of the bedside manner pieces is really key. I mean, people feel like they're going to get good care when they've got somebody who actually cares. Well, you touched on one of the most important guiding principles in the field of risk communication, which is what this podcast is really all about. And that's caring and empathy. When you're dealing with somebody who is angry or worried or suspicious, which would you know, many patients certainly fall into that category. If you are not caring an empathetic person in trying to communicate with them, the research shows that you will simply not be effective. You know, as you point out, they're so busy and moving from one thing to another and it's their job. And ultimately you want them to know what they're doing and to do the job right. And everything else is sort of beside the point. Well, you know, I, I, one of the things I always think about, you know, cause there, during that 20 years in the OR, there were definitely times when my communication was not up to snuff. It's definitely something that you, you really learn to, to be better at over time. At least that was my experience. But one of the things that I think is so valid is when we show up and we, you know, with the, with the heart full of service and empathy and wanting to care, people feel that like, you don't even have to say anything. People know it. So even if you're in a difficult conversation with somebody, as long as you're showing up and you're showing up that way, it, those conversations can be had because people know, they just know that that's where you're coming from. That's the advice I would give anybody in a difficult conversation. Contra, I don't think we could possibly find a better way to end. You've almost summarized the, you know, the whole point of my podcast there in that last, in that last response. So being human is one of the, something that I try to work with my clients on because I, I don't work with physicians, but I work with a lot of scientists and engineers and researchers, very technical people. And and often you just have to remind them, hey, you're, you're a person talking to another person. Come at it that way. And you can share a lot of data and facts and science. But as they say, people need to know that you care before they'll care what you know. Well, I really appreciate it. This was fascinating. I'm glad we connected. This is such a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm 
going to wrap things up quickly this episode. I was up very late last night learning everything I could about Kamala Harris, Democrat's vice presidential nominee. Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo of JimUmGroup.com for the original music, CeCe Snetzinger for the original podcast art, and please send us questions or comments at WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive.